there is a lot of soul searching and there is the moment where you say, you know, can I continue? Does this make sense to continue? And I think out of that sometimes comes even more passion and more determination. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Moral. Today's guest on the show is Julian Guthrie. Julian is an award-winning journalist, New York Times bestselling author, and all-around adventurer who loves underdog stories. Her latest book, which is due out on April 30th, is called Alpha Girls, The Women Upstarts Who Took on Silicon Valley's Male Culture and Made the Deals of a Lifetime. Julian has interviewed some of the world's most dynamic leaders and loves improbable stories and contrarian thinkers. In the interview, Julian and I talk about what attracts Julian to the stories of underdogs, defined as people or ordinary people doing extraordinary things. How Peter Diamandis, the entrepreneur best known for being the founder and chairman of the XPRIZE Foundation, was rejected over 150 times in raising funds for the XPRIZE, yet managed to keep pursuing his goal. The surprising strategy that Julian used to get an interview with Larry Allison, who is the co-founder and former CEO of Oracle Corporation. We talk about the critical difference between rejection and failure and why infiltrating a system can be the best way to changing it, how adopting multiple identities can help you cope with failure, and finally, we talk about the common denominators of the four pioneering women whom Julian featured in her latest book, Alpha Girls, and how these women managed to take on Silicon Valley's male culture and make the deals of a lifetime. If you'd like to keep in touch with me, your host, you can sign up for my weekly email, which goes out to nearly 14,000 subscribers every Thursday morning. It shares a, a new article that I wrote that week, along with recommendations for books, articles, tools, quotes, and other gems that challenge conventional wisdom and help you look at the world a little bit differently. Uh, The newsletter is called The Weekly Contrarian. And if you sign up, you'll also get my free ebook, which is called The Guide to Contrarian Thinking, Eight Principles for Innovating Your Thinking. You can sign up for my newsletter and get the ebook by going to weeklycontrarian.com. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Julian Guthrie. Julian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Excited for our conversation. Likewise. I've really been looking forward to this one. I just finished reading your forthcoming book, Alpha Girls, as well as the one that came before, which is How to Make a Spaceship. And I want to start with a strand that connects both of these books and, and probably the two that came before as well. So many of the stories that you tell in your books center on the underdog, so normal people doing extraordinary things. What attracts you to the the story of the underdog? Oh, I think probably the struggle. I love to, as you said, tell these stories of underdogs who take on kind of these Herculean struggles or seemingly impossible tasks or goals and see how they go about that, both through innovations, through technology uh, is a big part of of what I seem to gravitate to as a writer, but also just, you know, how we as human beings can persevere through challenges, difficult times, naysayers, and our own self-doubt, really. So I'm interested in, always in my storytelling, in 
the human drama that really drives the narrative. And in my last few books, how that's coupled with finding a breakthrough and innovation, something in technology or material science that allows it to happen. But again, I'm, I'm ceaselessly interested in the human spirit and how we succeed and what happens when we fail. And so I think that's why I'm drawn to these underdog stories. I'm always amazed how many different ways people find to persevere and prevail. So let's go to one concrete example of a story of perseverance and human spirit. And this comes from How to Build a Spaceship, which is a book that came before the latest one, Alpha Girls. So in the book, you tell the story of how Peter Diamandis was rejected over 150 times in raising yeah. funds for the for the X Prize, which is an amazing story. So for those in the audience who don't know who Peter Diamandis is, can you share with us who he is and how he managed to keep going despite this, this slate of repeated rejections? Oh my gosh, Peter is this larger than life figure who is quite a great character. I mean, from a writer's standpoint. So Peter Diamandis is this, uh, you know, now 50 something year old man, but who as a child was obsessed with getting to space and his superheroes were the astronauts. And he had this changing point in his life in July 1969, when he got to stay up late and watch, of course, the man first set foot on another celestial body. And he was transfixed and he was determined to get to space. At the time, there was no private path to space. So he fixated on how would he get there. And first he thought through the government, the only channel that existed through NASA. He went to MIT, he went to Harvard, he got his medical degree with no intention of ever actually practicing medicine, but thinking that maybe it would help him to live longer so eventually he could get to space. He was the quintessential space geek, which I say with with great fondness and admiration. So when he gets out of MIT and and Harvard with this six pack of degrees, he looks around and again, there's no private path to space and his chances of becoming an astronaut and then becoming an astronaut who actually flew, he realized his chances were really slim. So this is a great story. This is about the power of a book, which of course, as the author, I embrace. He's reading Charles Lindbergh's amazing book, The Spirit of St. Louis. And he has his aha moment when he reads that Lindbergh flew in 1927, not as a stunt, but to win a prize. He was trying to win a $25,000 prize that this French hotelier, Raymond Orteg had put out there. And Peter thinks, you know, he's madly like scribbling in the in the book margins. And he says if he could do for space what Lindbergh did for commercial airline travel, then that was his breakthrough. He needed to crowdsource his idea. I think this was even before there was such a term, but he needed to present this challenge of how to get to space privately to the crowd, to the Mavericks to the think different sort of group that was out there. So in 1996, he went to St. Louis where Lindbergh had found his backers and he announced this very audaciously announced this $10 million prize for the first team, private team, non-governmental that could build and fly a manned rocket to the start of space. 
and they set it at the von Karman line that would be the the again the start of space. So we put out this call to action. Minor detail: he didn't have the ten million dollars, <laughs> but uh, which leads us to your question. But this really galvanized rocket scientists, rocketeers, space aficionados, aerospace geeks all around the world to start uh, trying to build the world's first private spaceship. And in the meantime, Peter's going out trying to get the funding. And he thought it would be really easy to get the money and difficult to get the teams. And it proved just the opposite. So as these risk takers and mavericks were off building their, trying to build their rockets, their spaceships, so to speak, um, Peter was knocking on doors to try to get funding. And as you said, he heard no over 150 times, people ask two things regularly. They consistently asked, you know, what if someone dies and why isn't NASA doing this? And no one really wanted to take on the risk. And also people thought it was an impossibility. So Peter persevered, you know, he persevered through really down times, through 9-11, when people said, you know, basically, dude, you got to give up. This is not going to happen. And he was just unrelenting. You know, he saw that the teams were building, that there was momentum there. And, you know, something in him made him made him persevere. And we can talk more about that. But again, it was there were really dark days for him, you know, wondering, wow, we have these teams building, but I don't have the money yet. I don't have this $10 million prize that really jump started the whole thing. So since you've written several of these stories of, of perseverance, and we can start with Peter and branch out from there, but are there any common qualities that you see in people? It doesn't even have to be qualities. It can be ways of thinking, frameworks of looking at life. It might be educational background, whatever you may have noticed, common variables across these stories of people who persevere in the face of, as you said, in Peter's case, dark days, repeated rejections and repeated failures. Well, I think with Peter in particular, you know, he had he had so much passion like this is getting to space or creating a private path to space so that more people can get to the mysterious great beyond was something that he had started and it was rolling and, you know, it was his really his lifelong dream for this to happen. And I think he got so far into it that he just wasn't giving up. And so every, you know, every new meeting he went to, you know, at meeting number 140, 141, or, you know, and on and on, he believed that was going to be it. He was certain that it was going to be, this person is going to be it. So he never lost hope. He actually never lost faith in, in what he had incentivized and also just his belief that this was going to happen just takes a lot of energy, you know, when you're getting little bits of affirmation, but big no's. And I think it was all about passion, really, but it was also about just this determination in in your vision. And that's what I've seen with some of the world's greatest success stories who I've who I've been privileged to interview where there is a lot of soul searching and there is the moment where you say, you know, can I continue? Does this make sense to continue? And I think out of that sometimes comes even more passion and more determination. It's a mysterious 
quality that gives people resilience one of the the qualities I feel like we need most in life, really resilience and a belief in your own vision that you have to have to the point where you're almost unrelatable. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Let me flip the question and ask you about the role of resilience and perseverance in your own life. You can pick any example you want, but I think the audience in particular would love to hear the the story of how you managed to get an interview with the Oracle co-founder and CEO, Larry Ellison. Oh, that's a really funny story, actually. So I had written several pieces about Larry, including I was freelancing for Forbes and I'd done a few pieces on him that I knew he was pretty pleased with. And then I ran into him at some event. He was more accessible then, slightly. It was a corporate event. And I happened to talk to him and he told me this great story about how he was going to go after the America's Cup, the oldest trophy in international sports, of course, the great saline regatta. And I was interested in what he was saying. But then I was really hooked when he said he was thinking about partnering with this radiator repairman who was the Commodore at the time of a blue collar boating club on the San Francisco Marina. And I said to him in that moment, I was like, you cannot tell another journalist the story (laughs) (laughs) because I was like the billionaire and the mechanic, which became the title of the book. So I went off and wrote a big magazine piece for it. And I worked at the Chronicle for a couple of decades. This was back in maybe 2000. I wrote a piece about Larry Ellison going after the America's Cup. And it was a big, big piece. So my agent had said, you know, this would be a great book. Actually, sometime later, now I'm now I'm recalling, my agent had said this would be a great book. And I completely agreed because by then, Larry had persevered and he had won the America's Cup and brought it back to America. And so I wrote up this book proposal. This is kind of like what Peter Diamandis did, where you announce something, but you don't have all of your ducks in a row. Right. So I wrote this book proposal. I was confident I could get Larry. And I'm not sure I would urge others to follow this process, but I was sure I could get Larry because it was such an amazing story and, you know, it was all about, you know, perseverance and finding the the uh, the winning formula in terms of the sailboat that they used. And there were really cool technological breakthroughs. So I sold this book proposal and then I emailed Larry and his people and I was like, good news. And I didn't hear anything back from Larry. And so I started to get rather nervous right. <laughs> about this because this is, is like Peter Diamandis without having the $10 million. But he believed so fervently, as, as I did, too, that this was such a great story and Larry would want to be a part of it. So over the next few months, I talked to the people around him, the chief marketing officer at Oracle, who was an ally and th- also thought it was a great story. And I learned that the only time he would respond to emails personally would be like around midnight. I think that was when he finally got to them himself. So I would like once a week send an email between 12 and 1 a.m. And finally, I got a three word email from him back. And it was you know, where I had laid this out and said, this is a great story. And now we have a book and, and so on. And the three word email that I got back, which was all I needed was happy to help. 
(sighs) So that launched us. In retrospect, it was taking a very big risk, but it all worked out great. You know, that was my kind of perseverance. That was my circling the wagons, working with the people around him. That was figuring out when he might respond to emails. And so that, you know, my email was at the top of the inbox. That was my personal passion for the story and leveraging the good work that I had already done in his mind as a journalist, as one of the few journalists that he would actually talk to. So it was all of those things, how I got that. I love this story. And for, for two reasons, I think there, there are two lessons here. One is a, is a minor lesson and, and the other is, is a more major one. The minor lesson is... You might want to you might want to send emails between midnight and one a.m. <laughs> if you're trying to reach someone who's not accessible. I think this was Tim Ferriss who told a similar story when he was trying to get in touch with uh, people. He would make sure to call after hours, like say after six p.m. at seven or eight, when the call would skip the assistant and go directly to whoever he was he was trying to reach. So, yes. so it, it pays off to uh, <laughs> to avoid the the nine to five emails when people are getting bombarded with with loss of requests for help. But the second and I think the more major lesson here is so many people and myself included uh, throughout my life, I felt afraid to get started. And I've told myself the story about, you know, I need all of my ducks in a row. I need X skill or I need Y product before I can take steps towards my goal. But both your story of of getting an interview with, well, not just getting the interview, but writing the book proposal before you had a commitment from Larry Allison or Peter Diamandis announcing the X Prize before he had raised funding for it, I think, you know, suggests the the, the value of of walking towards your goal before you think you're ready. I think so, too. It's interesting. I hadn't actually put those two stories together. But years ago, I interviewed Marissa Mayer when she was, let's see, she was still at Google and before she went to Yahoo. And she had said, you know, that she loved to be in way over her head. And she always surrounded herself with, she tried to surround herself with people who were far smarter. So she felt like she was a little bit out of her league, which is kind of hard for her to do because she's really very, very smart woman. But I think there's something to that where there is an unknown, especially in these big and important projects. You know, you don't know where exactly it's going to lead, but you know what you want to happen. And so there's a journey getting from where you are to where you want to end up. And there is an unknown. But again, you know, it's like with Peter, he had so much faith and so much determination because he believed that this should happen, that there should be a private path to space. And you look at where the world is now, you know, you have SpaceX, you have Blue Origin, you have Virgin Galactic, you have all of these private space companies that are phenomenal. And this just didn't exist. But Peter believed it, you know, on a lesser note, but very significant to me, I believe the story should be told. And I believed it was a story that was worth telling. And that the participants, Larry, primarily among them would want to tell that story. You know, it was a great story. It was a heroic story. It was a bold story. It was, you know, it involved other people that he cared about too and respected. But there is an element of risk that is unnerving. You know, and sometimes it's like, oh man, what if this does not work? 
Are there any strategies, and this could be as simple as like mental self-talk that you use in those moments when you think to yourself, this may not work out, I might fail? I don't really honestly let myself go there. You know, of course, we all have self-doubt from time to time, but this may sound kind of corny, but my family mantra growing up was, if at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. And so I always had that. I always had that belief. I have that belief now. If someone says no to me and it's something I really want, you know, I get more and more determined. So I have that tenacious streak that Peter certainly embodied. So I think that I, you know, I keep going back to, is this worthwhile? Why do I believe this? Why should I persevere? Why should I continue? And how do I get what I want? How do I convince the person that this is in his or her best interest as well? So I think it's coming up with kind of new strategies. You know, when there are no's, no doesn't really ever truly mean no for me. It, it means there were probably firm no's I've had in my life, but it encourages me to find a workaround, you know, or come back. A lot of it is timing. So, you know, sometimes it's it's not going to work this week or next week or even this year, but but come back to it if it's something that has enduring importance. I love that. And I'm just going to tease out two strands from from that answer. And I think these are both really important. One is zooming out and seeing the the larger picture of why you're doing something. And we often forget to do that just because we're lost in our own story or day-to-day story, day-to-day struggles. And rejection, when it happens, feels very, very personal. And same thing with, with failure. But if you zoom out and, as you said, look at the, the, the bigger purpose of, of why you're doing it, then no doesn't necessarily mean no. It can actually boost your determination to do something. And the second is, is this idea of no, this year means, doesn't mean no forever. (laughs) A product might fail, like Friendster, for example, didn't work out, but Facebook is this mega successful company now. And so uh, just because an idea failed before, just because you got a no or a rejection before, doesn't mean that that's the end of the road for that idea or, um, or that particular purpose. That's right. And also time will give you great perspective on the enduring value of your ideas. If you start losing interest in it, that says a lot. But if a year later you still believe that's an amazing startup idea, this is a great concept, this is a great new direction, whatever your goals are, then, you know, if they if they endure and if they stay in your mind and if they kind of nag at you, then that's actually a really good sign. If you look back on your life, what failure stands out to you as as particularly valuable and what makes that failure valuable? I feel like I've had a lot of failures. There have been little failures and then I suppose there have been bigger ones. You know, I do feel that failures, sadly, are great lessons. I had a lot of rejection early in my career as a writer Rejection isn't necessarily the same as as failure, but, you know, I would write stories that didn't get sold. And and then when I was at the at the examiner, when it was a uh, afternoon newspaper and then the San Francisco Chronicle, you know, anytime I got something wrong, that felt like a glaring failure. But then you learn from your mistakes and you ideally become, you know, better, stronger more careful. 
it's very hard to juggle you know, as men or women, but I have with, especially with my new book, seen how difficult it is, you know, this role that women have in juggling work and career and family. So, you know, I'm always rethinking that because I put so much time into my writing and, you know, my career as a journalist, as an author, and there are sacrifices that I have to make and that I have made you know, I try to always be there for my son, who's amazing. I realize it's a, it's a balancing act. So that doesn't really perfectly answer your question. But I feel like I'm always looking at my time management around home and work. And I've had to cut out a lot of things. And I don't know if that's a failure. I've had to say no to a lot of things. I've had to kind of limit the social outside of work time because I'm so driven around these stories and around my family. But I think it's required a ton of sacrifices just in terms of, you know, relaxation time, other hobbies. You know, I'm really driven around these stories that I'm telling and a close knit group of friends, you know, so I think there's a lot more that I would like to do, you know, whether in the nonprofit world, you know, maybe I could manage somehow manage my time better. I feel like I'm not 100% successful in that. I feel like I could become more successful in that. I don't know. Does that sound like a failure? That yeah, no, like- no, certainly. And I think you, you actually you actually gave us two. Just to circle back to the, the first one you mentioned, you said, you know, I don't know if rejection is, is failure. And I, I love the way you, you put that because we often assume that it is, right? We often assume that when we get rejected, that that means we've actually failed. But you're saying that it actually doesn't have to be failure. So you might get rejected, but if you keep trying, you might get to where you want to want to go. Or to put it slightly differently, we tend to be obsessed with grand openings, but the opening doesn't have to be grand as long as the finale is. Oh, I like that very much. You know, also, I think I've learned the benefits of having a lot of projects going at once, because if one fall short or fails, you have these other things. Like I have written, I've spent, oh, 10 years, I mean, off and on working on a novel, this really wild, strange work of fiction, and it hasn't sold. And my agent has gone out with it twice. And I think it's really great, but for whatever reason, it hasn't sold. Whereas my nonfiction is doing great. Thank heavens. You know, it's okay because you know, I still believe in the project. I don't think that it's dead. I think there's maybe another medium for it, uh, whether it's just like an, an audible book or I don't know. But my point is, is that if I have quote unquote failure with my novel, I have all these other projects that are going that I feel successful at. So sometimes it's also very beneficial to have if possible, a few projects going at once, at least that's how it is for me, because then I don't take the, the rejection say on the novel so hard because I'm having great success on the nonfiction side. I'm so glad you, you mentioned that I actually just wrote an article maybe two weeks ago about the benefits of, of diversifying your, your identity precisely for the reasons that you mentioned. I mean, if you, if you put all of your eggs in one basket and whatever that basket might be, 
if things aren't going well, then failure ends up hitting us really, really hard. But if you have multiple facets to your identity, whether for you, it's, you know, not only a journalist, a nonfiction author, but also a, a the writer of a novel, then, you know, when things aren't going well in one area, then you can lean on the, the others. And I've done this and I was doing this subconsciously, actually. I didn't realize it until I was doing some self-evaluation earlier this year about why I was doing it. But I'm a, I'm a law professor by day, but I also <laughs> used to be I used to be a rocket scientist and I've got a blog and a podcast and I write nonfiction books. And I thought to myself, you know, why am I doing these things? And I think it's partially because, well, one, then it becomes easier to connect ideas from from different disciplines, but more on point here with respect to failure if things aren't going well in one area, that doesn't hit me as hard because then I can lean on the other areas where I am doing well. Exactly. Well, clearly you're you're one of these underachievers. I mean, you should really up your game a little bit. <laughs> you're just not doing enough. Oh my gosh. Yes, I recently added, you know, more of a public speaking component as well to what I do, which is a lot of fun. And it's all I find very symbiotic. I don't know if you find that too, where one thing that you bring in that's new adds to all the other things that you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it allows you to, to connect just ideas from different disciplines. Albert Einstein called this uh, combinatorial play, where you you dabble in different different disciplines, and especially as a public speaker, I'm sure you're finding this, but speaking to different audiences allows you as the speaker to also be exposed to, to different industries and different questions as well. And then once you start collecting these dots, then you can become, you, you can then start connecting them. And that's how the some of the most creative ideas are born. We have about five to 10 minutes remaining here, and I'd love to spend some time talking about your your latest, your forthcoming book, Alpha Girls. In the book, which I was fortunate to get an advanced copy, and as I was mentioning to you before we started recording here, I absolutely love the book. You did such a masterful job of, of weaving the, the stories of these four amazing women together to, to construct a really compelling narrative. I couldn't put it down. So the the book, just to give the audience some background, it's these four pioneering women in Silicon Valley who defied the the double standards, the sexism of the tech world to rise up through its ranks to help build some of the most successful companies of our day. I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about how you picked the the four women that you you ended up featuring in the book. Yes, I love this story. It's due out April 30th, very soon. So I picked the women I did. It was interesting because it was actually when I was going around talking about how to make a spaceship with Peter Diamandis and speaking to these big audiences of scientists and engineers and and rocket enthusiasts that I looked out and I was like, wow. And there were a lot of entrepreneurs in the crowd, too. And I was like, wow, where are all the women? And I started looking at industries that are very, very impactful, but where there's a very low representation of women in the ranks. And my reporting brought me to venture capital in particular, where, you know, venture capitalists have a huge impact on they fund the companies that really impact how we all live. So I learned some statistics and I thought it was really intriguing that there were, you know, 92 plus percent of all venture capitalists are men. So they're writing the checks, they're funding the companies that get, you know, get built and, and become a part of our mainstream culture. So I began to wonder, what does that mean for how we all live and our future and when there's so little representation among women? And then I started finding the women who 
had succeeded, but were kind of these hidden figures of the tech industry of venture and tech because they one in particular, she kind of cycles in and out of entrepreneurship and venture capital. But I cast a wide net at first and interviewed a ton of women. And then I started zeroing in on women who had built something that was irrefutably theirs. So either a company that changed an industry or a company so significant that it was a game changer itself. So I started zeroing in and I found these four stories that really represent different generations, different paths to Silicon Valley, different industries where they played a really key role in you know, spotting, funding, backing, mentoring entrepreneurs and building companies. So I kind of bet again on without knowing fully their stories on these four particular women who I thought were really, really interesting and would make fantastic kind of phenotypes or or role models where if you don't necessarily relate to one, you're going to relate to the other. And I also wanted to tell their stories in not just of you know, their successes, but their failures, their regrets, their missteps, and when and how they they were either betrayed or let down. And that was really hard to get. But I'm really happy with the four primary characters. And then there are, you know, a lot of cameos and secondary and tertiary characters who are also very strong women. And they're interesting men, uh, mostly, you know, good guys in the book. I think that this book is unique in that it shows how it is possible to succeed in this industry that is tech, that is venture capital, that's all important, but also speaks to how women working in male-dominated industries, whatever it is, can also prevail. And that you know, that tech for women can be a really dazzling place to be. So that's how I kind of my methodology in in reporting this story and beginning to write it. That's that's how I went about it. And if you look at the the stories of the four primary women that you feature in the book and, and the others as well, can you identify maybe one or two common denominators that allow them to to shine in in such a hostile environment? Well, I learned so much from reporting this book because I had done these stories, as we've talked about, on these larger than life titans of industry, think outside the box, agitate kind of from the outside types, people who refuse to back down. And I think that those people are actually the point, you know, 1% or the point 0.0001%. And what this book taught me about success, I found really fascinating. And I didn't know what it was until I was done with the book until recently. And that is, that these women, what they shared is they focused on incremental steps, on small victories that all added up. They focused on working within a system, playing by the rules that were established by others, in this case, men, until they got to a point in their careers, which they did reach, where they could start writing the rules themselves. So it was figuring out really how to work within a system, kind of getting in almost like a Trojan horse analogy, where they got in to this old boys network, this boys network, and they succeeded and they, you know, figured out how to 
develop male allies, how to speak the language, their own areas of specialty, whether it was cybersecurity or whether it was social media. So their path to success was very, very different. And I think it's a it's a model for success that's much more relatable to most of us. But it was really illuminating for me to look at that you can increment your way to success. You know, that it doesn't have to be just born trailblazers because most people are not. And so in that way, you know, I just found that I find their stories really relatable and very illuminating, again, for how I think about success. That's such an important lesson. Often we tend to think that to change a system, we have to attack it from the outside. But what you're saying is that actually, at least in the case of these these four women, it worked a lot better to infiltrate the system, almost assimilate yourself into it, and then once you move up the ranks, then then change the rules of the game. This often comes up in conversations I have with my one of the classes I teach is criminal law and students who are dissatisfied with the criminal justice system they often tend to be tend to want to be public defenders so representing criminal defendants mm-hmm. who have been charged with a crime and I encourage them to consider the other possibility which is to become a prosecutor infiltrate the system <laughs> move up through the ranks and then do as the the four women you feature in the book did and once they've infiltrated the system to to rewrite its rules Well, I love that. I hadn't thought about that, but that's exactly what's happening. And that's what's happening with um, the alpha girls, the women that I profile, where now there is this kind of nascent rebellion going on in Silicon Valley to bring in more women. And these women that I write about are at the forefront of that. And that is to make sure that uh, women founders are funded at a much better level than they have been historically, which is been abysmal. I think around 2% of all VC dollars have gone to women-founded firms and even less for women of color. So now you have these investing platforms, these all-women's investing platforms. You have women who are starting their own VC firms and you know now 43 to 45% up plus percentage of their their VC dollars are going to women-founded firms. There's more attention on this. The, the women in the ranks of venture capital, again, which I see as a key industry, if venture doesn't diversify, tech won't diversify. There are more women than ever before joining the ranks. So there is this kind of quiet rebellion going on, or maybe not so quiet, that the women that I write about You know, they had a long journey to get to this place where they could be kind of agitating from the outside. You know, not everybody is a is a Rosa Parks who, you know, with your one defiant act, you spark a movement. You know, sometimes it takes women like this or people like this who, again, work within a system to affect change slowly but surely. You know, these I think there are many paths to resistance and. Or resistance can take many forms and that small incremental victories really can add up. It's one of the, the, the themes which I never saw uh, until now in the book. Well, I think that's the perfect note to wrap up this, this conversation on. Alpha Girls will be out on April 30th and will be available wherever books are sold. And I was also reading, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it's also being made into a television series. 
It is, which I'm super excited about. So we had multiple offers on the adaptation, and I went with this extraordinary woman whose name is Kathy Shulman, and she is one of only three women in history to win an Academy Award as producer. I mean, there's something wrong there, but I mean that the you know she's one of only three, but she's adapting it, working with a talented screenwriter named Margaret Nagel, adapting it for a, a multi-season television series so stay tuned but be sure to read the book first definitely <laughs> and uh, we will include all the the links to to buy the book in the oh, in the you. show notes if people are interested in learning more about you and your work where can they find you online twitter at julian guthrie i'm on facebook under my name i have a website www.juliannguthriesf for sanfrancisco.com. I'm pretty easy to connect with and always love to hear from people. Excellent. We'll include links to all of that as well. Julian, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the great interview. Much appreciated the discussion and, and loved every minute of it. Likewise. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.